Good morning. This morning, our scripture will be from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we'll also hear from Galatians 3, 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning, and thank you, Renee, for that reading from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia, a letter that most believe is the Apostle Paul's earliest letter that we have collected in Scripture, dating to around 49 A.D. That's an old letter. That's a really old letter, but don't you like to read old personal letters? I know I do. More than historical records or ancient literature, I find old personal letters to be especially interesting. Now, maybe that's because of my own collection. See, I do, yes, have collected all of the letters and cards that Christy and I exchanged when we were dating some 30 years ago. This is where you say, aww. <laughs> no, I will not be reading from any of them this morning. Aww. <laughs> But I do occasionally take the opportunity to pull them out and read from them myself. And as I do, I am taken back to that early stage of our relationship. And, you know, that's, I think that's what's so special about personal letters. Because even if you did not know either of us at all, you might read them. And yes, there's a good deal of the gooey, gushy hugs and kisses but surprisingly, there's an even more significant amount of uh, varied and insightful conversation. See, you would have access to really our raw and honest thoughts, our dreams, our priorities, our feelings, our convictions. You could start to paint a picture of really being in that moment with us. Now, maybe you've read other letters like that. I think about those that are written during wartime from the front back home, heart-wrenching, but honest, raw, genuine. Maybe you've read the collections of great uh, people, uh, histor historical figures. They've compiled their letters of their private moments and their private thoughts. Or perhaps you've enjoyed what I think are some of the best, uh, some out of your own family archives. Uh, maybe that box in the attic or one that was tucked in a book from a previous generation. Well, which, whichever uh, that it is, if you have done that, uh, then you know exactly what I mean. Old personal letters 
are extremely fascinating. If you have not ever done that, well, today's a good day for you. Because just a few weeks ago, we entered into a study of old personal biblical letters. It is the final stage, the final section of our one-story Bible through the Year sermon series. And over this remainder time of this fall, we are going to be advancing God's story, the narrative of his redemptive history by way of a weekly biblical letter. And we're thankful that these letters, although they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Spirit to individual authors who spoke into specific circumstances, they were written to specific contextual audiences, and they were sent to specific locations. We are grateful that the Lord saw fit to not, while not writing to us, he has written and preserved them for us. And so this morning, we have arrived at the letter to the Galatians. It is arguably the Apostle Paul's most direct and most passionate letter. In reading Galatians, even though we obviously did not know the Apostle Paul at all, Oh, we start to formulate this picture. We can start to develop a little bit about Paul's personality. We can, we can sense the situation that he is speaking into. We discover his priorities, his um, emotions, uh, for certain, his theology. And he attacks in this letter what it seems to be to him the most, at least one of, but I think the most dangerous issues facing the church and he attacks it and he attacks it confronts it with this great intensity that we can read throughout i mean how how often can you pick up a letter and either the beginning or right in the middle you get dearest galatians you fools i mean could you imagine going up to the attic and seeing a letter addressed from grandma to grandpa that way right we'd be intrigued who'd put that letter down we got to keep reading that. Well, I'm hopeful that you are equally intrigued this morning. Let's see what Paul had in mind. And we begin. Let's begin with the specific audience. Who is this that Paul's writing to? Who are the Galatians? Well, if you think back a couple of weeks in Acts, which was the historical account of the early church, Acts 13 and 14, we are described, it's described for us, this first missionary journey by Paul and Barnabas. They have started out and they arrive at these cities, these four cities, somewhere in the middle of this journey, Pisidian and Iconium and Lystra and Derb. And these cities are located in a region called Galatia. You can see on the map, Galatia, modern Turkey. At the time of Paul, Galatia there with the red shade right in the middle, about the middle of that first missionary journey. Galatia was a Roman province, but it had received its name about two or three hundred years prior when these thousands of fiercely independent Celtic invaders from a region known as Gaul, some of you that may know Western Europe, that's usually referred to as an area of modern France, Gaul, these Celtic Frenchmen, early Frenchmen, had ravished their way across Europe they landed in this region, and then the Romans finally said, enough, that's where you stop. We'll take it from here. Well, these Gaul peoples, 
or quite literally Galatians, um, landed here. I didn't make that up. That would have been good, but I didn't. That's exactly what happened. So at this point, they're sharing this region with many now Greeks and Gentiles and Jews who are in this region of Galatia. And it's really this mix of religious uh, history and ethnic heritage that starts to lead to a lot of challenges and hardships for Paul. He was run out of town in many of these places. He was pursued from town to town. He was even stoned and left for dead outside of one of these cities. Acts 13 and 14, we get all the background there. But despite these hardships, or as we see often in Scripture and the way God works because of these hardships, many came to believe. And, and so after some time, Paul and Barnabas, uh, it's, they're moving on. They're headed down back home, retracing their steps. Galatia in the rearview mirror, the churches have been established. Work is done. I think we're in good shape here. The gospel is established. Well, we fast forward a few months. Paul arrives home to Antioch. He, um, he records what we could find as the very first international Christian mission trip coming to a close. And he no longer um, is part of this trip, but he no sooner kicks off his sandals, unpacks his bags, and he gets word from Galatia. And the word's not good at all. In fact, Paul wastes no time. The word is so concerning, he grabs a pen, he grabs a sheet of papyrus, and he gets to work. He says, this is urgent. There's no time to pull punches. There's no words of praise or thanksgiving throughout this letter. And Paul writes with this great fiery passion for which he used to defend Judaism. And we see it in Galatians. What an intriguing letter. So what is it? What is it that got Paul so riled up, went so horribly wrong in just a few months, maybe six months, a year? Were the Galatian believers behaving immorally? Were they dishonoring the Lord's Supper? Were they attending the chariot races on Sunday morning instead of church? Wasn't any of that. Paul's eyes, this was so much worse. This was so much worse. In two words, the Galatians were guilty of legalistic foolishness. Legalistic foolishness. It is also known as tampering with the integrity of the gospel. And in our scripture this morning, we're going to observe Paul speaking into two categories of this foolishness and legalism as it relates to the gospel. And one of the things I would encourage you to note is that we're just looking at really a couple of verses, and we're going to see this from Paul. It's such a small sampling of his defense throughout the entire letter, but also his defense that we see consistent through all of his letters. It's central. He is passionate about breaking the chains of legalism for the unbeliever and the believer, for which he's going to speak most, uh, most passionately to this morning. So he is spreading the good news of freedom that is found only in Jesus Christ. And I think for that we should be also. Let's see, let's see what he says. So let's begin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let's just stop. Just right there. 
It's the first of seven, seven words. Let's not move past this. See, it's our tendency to sometimes read Scripture, particularly where it's either encouraging or uh, where it's condemning. And uh, the words have lost their intensity. They've lost their meaning. Uh, let's not tone this down. Paul meant this to be especially explosive. See, when we, we hear the term foolish or fools or foolery, certain things come to our mind, perhaps. Maybe we think about the old court jester or the jokester. Maybe we think about some gullible or lovable type of fellow. Uh, Barney Fife, Homer Simpson, your little brother, that guy on YouTube. Of course, some of us become quite sympathetic. We think of someone who has been made to look foolish. It wasn't of their own doing. A prank, a trick, or maybe even more ill intent. They were made to look foolish. And then there are others that come to mind, perhaps, that are seemingly always headed for trouble. And all we can do is shake our heads and channel our inner Mr. T and say, I pity the fool. My apologies to Mr. T. But none of these at all do justice to Paul's intention. See, Paul's using this word, anoitoi, anoitoi, it's a compound word. It literally means ah, without, noitoi means thinking or the mentality, it's kind of where we get these words. It meant a person or action of no thought. Commentators have suggested that a, that a great understanding of this, a more accurate phrasing, might be mindless idiocy. Mindless idiocy. It's not a lack of intelligence. It's not uh, a matter of silliness or cluelessness. It's a lack of wisdom. We think about Proverbs where wisdom is the counter opposite of foolishness. We think about most of God's word where God is the supreme example of wisdom. So those things that are counter God are foolish. There are serious implications with this charge and this word. They have set aside all spiritual discernment, all godly discretion, and handled the gospel in a mindless way. You know, it's interesting about this word. Jesus will use it in Matthew when he speaks about the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Don't be as those fools, acting foolish. But, get this, this gives us an idea, I think, of the intensity here. In Matthew 5, he actually had warned prior that anyone who uses this word in an unrighteous or a hateful manner was also due his wrath. So Paul's not playing around here. This word was used, intended to shock the Galatians and accuse them of mindless Christianity. And since they were so mindless about the gospel and all that they had been taught and tested in Scripture and truth, well, they were bewitched. They were duped. They were hoodwinked. They let their guard down and they were had. The connotation really is that of being hypnotized, charmed, allured into doing something that you know better than to do. If only they had been thinking. Have we ever, have you ever been there? No, you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> I think we all have, right? I, I would suggest that we all have, right? That we, we might say that we, there was a moment in our life where we fell under the influence or the, the spell of the worldly influence. We got caught up in the wrong crowd. We were charmed into a biblical interpretation taken out of context. 
One that sounded a whole lot better to our ears, enticing us to live in a way that had we given any thought to the truth that we had previously learned, we would have recognized it was not God's will for our life. But we were acting mindlessly and we were bewitched. Well, what is it that they were bewitched about? Paul continues, verse 2. See, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, after getting their attention, they sat up. Paul's serious here. Paul reminds the Galatians of how they had been justified by faith and not the works of the law. He and Barnabas were there when they heard the gospel and they received it. They knew that it was not by their works, that the assurance of salvation, or what Paul refers to as receiving the Spirit, was by faith alone. And so throughout the rest of our time this morning, and then really throughout all the letters of Paul, there's two terms. This is a good time just to pause real quick. There's two terms, and I think we've touched on them before, but they're always good to go back over because they're biblical, and they're important for our defense of and understanding of and sharing of the gospel. Two theological terms, and they are justification, and I would suggest that justification is the act of God whereby our sins are forgiven, and Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We are declared justified before God. Sometimes we use that word interchangeably about our salvation. We have been saved. One way I like to think about it, as I've, I've seen this before, is that justification is just as if I had never sinned. At our moment of salvation, God has says the righteousness of Christ, His work on the cross was enough. You are now right in my eyes, just as if you had never sinned. And then the second word is sanctification. Sanctification. As justified before God, the next step, believers are set apart, which sanctifies really the word for being set apart or made holy. We're set apart for his purpose through the ongoing maturity toward perfection, never reaching it or obtaining it in this world, but moving toward it each day, just a little bit more. The pursuit of Christ-likeness, sometimes we use this word interchangeably with our discipleship, perhaps loosely. It's the next phase. We, are, we come to justification or justify. We now pursue sanctification for all the rest of this worldly time we have. And then at that point, praise Lord, we receive glorification. Those are the shuns. I know they're not everyday uses, but they are, again, important. Justification declared right through the work of Christ. Sanctification set apart in pursuit of Christ's likeness, again, through the work of Christ. So have a good understanding of that. Okay, we're going we're gonna to use that in Paul. But Paul says, remember, coming to your salvation, you clearly saw publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's an interesting phrase. I don't think I have ever described my salvation as one of coming to a point of seeing Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. But here's, here's the beauty of what Paul's saying here. See, this, this idea of publicly portrayed was the word that would have been used to uh, denote something that had been posted on a community board. It was that visible. It's, it's, was, it was about really saving faith that is simply not about knowing who Jesus is or hearing about Jesus, but coming to a point of seeing him. 
with our eyes on him as being crucified and dying for our sins. Just as vivid as, as we might say today, passing a billboard on the highway, that's the moment of justification for us. We saw Christ publicly crucified. And it's important because that's the essence of the gospel. That's really the essence of the gospel because it's the proclamation of what Jesus has done for us over and above and before and in place of a proclamation of anything we can do for Jesus. Because otherwise, if we don't come to Jesus with our eyes publicly, the eyes of our heart and our mind, seeing Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified, the proclamation quickly becomes, yes, Christ, you died for me, but I also have to do good works, be a nice person, memorize the Bible before I am really justified to you. Paul would say, it's foolish. That's legalistic justification. And it's not possible, and it's certainly not biblical. You know, Paul, again, we say we, he constantly instructs on this, what it means to be a Christian. And this is our answer, really. This is something we can learn to, to demonstrate and share ourselves. Paul's saying this is what it means to be a Christian, that justification is always the result of faith in the cross and the resurrection and never by our works. We see it elsewhere two places beautifully by Paul. Romans 10, 9 through 10, wonderful, wonderful passage there. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You will be saved. Not you might, you may. It's possible. You will. For with the heart one believes and is justified. There's that word again. All it took is belief. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's it. Again, in Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. How often? He's going to hammer this, all these personal letters. Not the result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. We'll hold that thought. We're going to get to that here in a little bit. So that no one may boast. See, the crucified cross, crucified Christ on the cross, by extension, the resurrected Christ, represents the finished work of our salvation. By faith we receive it and we're counted righteous in God's eyes. That's the gospel, nothing more. That's the formula. Paul would even say to the, to the Corinthians at the end of 1 Corinthians, because if that's not enough, if for some reason we're wrong on this and it takes works and not just faith, then what Christ did on the cross, totally meaningless. It was nothing. It was worth it. Disregard it. And any explanation that moves us away from faith-based salvation and justification, what Renee read earlier, is a distorted gospel. God says that the distorter of that gospel is now worthy of being accursed. Important stuff here. So the danger of legalistic justification, that first element of being legalistic, is significant. It simply doesn't justify. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ is enough. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus in this room or online with us at some point, the best encouragement I can give you is set your eyes on the crucified Christ, nothing else. Start there. Now, all right, so here's what Paul's doing. He has spent the latter half of chapter 2 reminding the Galatians of how they became saved, justified. And so far, I think they and most of us in this room, not all, but most of us will say, amen, Amen. I'm with you. I get that. 
I came to Christ in faith alone. In fact, when I share the gospel, I talk about it being in faith alone. That makes total sense. It made total sense to the Galatians. This is just the setup. This is just the logic Paul's using to say, remember, I was with you. You saw Christ. That was enough to justify. Remember, remember, remember. Now here comes the punchline. And here comes what is going to be fairly uh, focused squarely on most of us this morning, the remainder of Paul's comments. It's something we don't often think about. But let's read. He says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, being justified by the Spirit, you now being perfected by the flesh. Are you now pursuing sanctification by your own means? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, his presence is among you, does he do so by your works of the law? Or does he do so by your hearing with faith? This is the catalyst of this urgent letter. This is the, say, the bee in Paul's theological bonnet. The Galatians had been justified by faith. They should have also been sanctified by faith, not works. This is madness to Paul. Works-based theology. They were guilty of legalistic sanctification. This is subtle. This is why it's as prevalent in the church today as it was in Galatia. Because we can disguise legalistic sanctification as something that's uber-righteous. Well, the Pharisees did that too. But it can make us feel good. It can make us feel as if we are interpreting what we are supposed to do next correctly. So this is a stark warning. It's, it's, it's easy to get caught up on, and we're going to talk about that. He says, how could this have happened? You know, yeah, your salvation is secure. We were with you. We know you know. But your approach to sanctification, to discipleship, to living out your faith for the remainder of your days on this earth, becoming Christ-like, it's mindless. It's foolish. See, they had fallen into the trap. False and prideful teachers had hypnotized them. They had flattered them. They had charmed them into thinking that the works of circumcision and prayer, and diet, and worship ritual, and being a better Christian, that those things were required in order to remain in God's favor and to increase one's standing before him. It, it, it would be as if someone were to tell us today, if we were to teach this, which we are not, that for you to increase God's love for you, again, for you to be a better Christian, you must be baptized. You must share in communion. You must serve in the coffee bar, and you must join a small group. That's it. It's the law. Well, Paul attacks this, this way of thinking aggressively, and I think it's because when we live out our faith through works and law rather than grace and faith, the opposite of how we came to faith, he says, you're foolish. Why'd you, why'd you switch horses midstream? It's as if we're saying, God, you did your part, Thanks for saving me. I'll take over now. Just watch me go. Stand back. We view our spiritual growth as dependent on how hard we work, what all we know, what we do. And really, it's like the altered chorus. If you know the old wonderful song, Jesus Paid It All. It's a wonderful song. He paid it all. The altered chorus would be where we were singing something like, well, Jesus paid a lot. A lot is left to pay, and since the debt is infinite, I'll work till judgment day. You know what Paul would say? Foolish, mindless. 
You folks are driving me crazy. Jesus paid it all. His grace is sufficient to save. It is sufficient to sanctify. Don't go back to the law. You are free. And if there's a word that describes and sums up all of Galatians, it's freedom. And it's because of their misunderstanding of being back captive to the law after they were saved. Paul says, of all people, you should be the most free. Rejoice in that. Don't go back to the law, but the allure of a works-based sanctification is real. And with it, there are two inherent dangers. Let's talk about those real quick, because I think this is where a little bit of uh, rubber hits the road. See, first, when we're guilty of legalistic sanctification, the most obvious is that we turn our eyes off of Christ and we put them squarely on ourselves. We get caught up in doing so much as a means to staying or growing in relationship with God that we forget and lose sight of the relationship altogether. And the issue, like so many matters of faith, is really an issue of the heart and its motives. In fact, I saw a great definition of performance-based sanctification or works-based sanctification that really performance is really the idea of doing good things, the things God likes, with the wrong motive. That's when we're guilty of works-based sanctification. Here's what I mean. Are we called to baptism? Well, yes. Obedience is clear. Are we called to communion, prayer, worship, giving, serving? Yes, doing these things in the service of the Lord. Most definitely. Jesus would stress that. Paul would stress it. It's, it's throughout. But these things, even the sacraments of baptism and communion, the acts of worship, they're only fully sanctifying and effectual. They're only blessings and not burdens when our hearts are motivated by the public portrayal of Christ crucified. Our works are never a means of how much God loves us. We do because we love. He never loves because we do. And that's so hard for us to get, get over and to think through. In this world, in this culture, in this time, in this society, it's, it's, if, not, if we're not motivated by the crucified Christ, we are motivated by what would be called um, checklist religion or the requirements of our faith. And if that's not liberating to you, wrestle with it. Wrestle with that. Be disturbed by it. Be disturbed. Uh, let it disturb you like it did Martin Luther. Luther, a 16th century monk, had lived under great bondage to the law. He daily stressed over whether he had done enough that day to retain his place and his position before God. And one day, the freedom in reading Galatians, the freedom struck him. In fact, he often referred to the letter of Galatians as my letter, my betrothed, my love. If Christ alone was enough to save him, it was certainly enough to sanctify him. And of course, the Reformation itself, for which he played a big part, would then correct many, not all, but many of the works-based theology that had infiltrated the medieval church. Freedom in that. What he struggled with initially is probably what some of us struggle with as well. What about the counter of that? What about the opposite of that, the other end of the spectrum? What about the idea of cheap grace? I mean, without the guardrails of the law, without something moving us to action, won't we all get lazy? Won't we take advantage of that freedom? I'm good. I'm in. I'm free. We'll do nothing. So that's a great question. 
And it's a question that Paul knew you were going to ask. In chapter 5, 5 and 6, really, those two chapters are about how we don't abuse that freedom. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom. That's what I've been telling you. Yet do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Selfishness, self-centeredness works. Rather, serve one another in love. And he goes on and on and on. In fact, he goes on to say that, it's, that it, is, um, it is through that freedom that the works of the fruit of the Spirit, chapter 5 of Galatians, wonderful passage on the fruit of the Spirit, that they are then worked out through you. You can serve more with that motivation of freedom because it's no longer, and this isn't semantics, truly. It is no longer I have to. It is I get to. And you know, that, that could be a point of tension uh, even in this room or, again, if you're watching online today. Again, don't, don't raise your hands. Not that you would, but please don't. Right where you sit, in the privacy of your heart and your mind, answer this question honestly. Are you here this morning part of joining in corporate worship because you want to be? Or because you feel like you have to be? Paul would say that if we feel like we have to be here to fulfill some form of requirement, that once we release that obligatory, legalistic, self-imposed church attendance law, we will discover great freedom in him and Jesus. And it's as counterintuitive as it might sound, Paul would say that when we release the have to, and we move to the, the get-to, and we desire even more to be about corporate worship, to give praise for that freedom and the gift that Christ has gifted to us in it. Again, that's not simply semantics. It's truly a gospel-centered motivation of the heart. The first inherent danger is really the, we, we lose sight of Jesus and it becomes an us, and it becomes a have to. But then there's a second inherent danger. And I think this one is, again, really dangerous in the universal church today. I think it's dangerous between local church bodies. It's dangerous between denominations. But a second inherent danger of legalistic sanctification is comparative Christianity. Comparative Christianity. See, Paul will point to in chapter 4, verse 17, and I like this paraphrase, the sort of nuance of the message translation for this. He says, those heretical teachers, the one who told you now you're saved, now you must do all these things, they go to great lengths to flatter you. Their motives are rotten. They want to shut you out of the free world of God's grace so that you will always depend on them for approval and direction, making them feel important. Can you see the system of performance, politics, and works that have been baked into this and all the consequences and, you know, really, I think this is, I think, often unintentional consequences, um, subconscious, or they're never, we never want to get to this point. But if we're ever saying or thinking something like, well, I do this and that, and you should too, or look at how much I'm serving, am I the only one doing this? I sure am important here. If we get to even thinking that, we need to be careful, I think. We need to consider that a warning sign of a works-based sanctification. It's also usually identified by pride, jealousy, and exhaustion. 
See, in our fallen state, even as believers, not yet totally perfect, but pursuing perfection, when performance is our motivation, we will naturally compare our performance to others. You know, it reminds me of um, the response uh, of Jesus and the response of, of Martha when she and Mary were uh, in the home and Jesus was there and, and Martha's doing all this work and Mary's sitting at his feet and Martha says, Jesus, you know, why, why am I doing all this work? Mary's doing nothing, comparing herself. But you know what I find really encouraging about that passage? Where were the eyes of Mary? Not yet the crucified Christ, but on Christ publicly portrayed. Her eyes had been turned to Jesus. She would go on to work and worship and serve passionately for the Lord. Tirelessly at times. And that's a pretty good lesson, I think. See, we're to hold one another accountable. We need to, we need to make sure that we are being sanctified in gospel living we are to encourage one another to serve selflessly, sometimes tirelessly. We are to invite others to join in those ministry passions of ours. But let's ensure when we do these things that we are grounded in biblical humility and we are guided by a grace-filled motivation of gospel freedom. Be alert to the danger of comparative Christianity that stems from legalistic sanctification. Of course, we again, we could walk down all the consequences of, of division and divisiveness that results from comparative Christianity, but the heart of it, the root of it, is really grounded in the idea of, well, now that I'm saved, I must do, do, do. No, you must not. We have the great privilege to serve the one who has done it all. That's our motivation. Ah, it's just a few verses. Oh, it's a lot of stuff there. We're just scratching the surface, really, of, of Galatians and all of what Paul would say on the subject. But before we close, by way of summary, I would like to just share four points. Four points to help us avoid legalistic foolishness in the days ahead. Number one, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, our highest calling is to discuss the idea of a biblical salvation that comes by way of grace through faith with you. If you're curious at all, turn your eyes to the crucified cross, cross in Christ. Please don't leave here. Make a note on your hand here card or contact us directly or come up to us or make a note on the digital. That is a discussion that we just are very privileged to have with you. Second, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you, you know that you are held captive by works and law, I'd encourage you to read all of this old personal letter from the Apostle Paul. It's just six chapters. It's beautiful. Six chapters of what many call Paul's letter of independence. And as you do, I pray that your heart would be transformed by gospel-centered motivation. Three, if you feel like you might be a little bit guilty of comparative Christianity, let's pray for God's grace to restore your kingdom service with greater humility. Be reminded of Jesus' word to not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Turn your eyes to Christ crucified, knowing that your works much as we don't like to hear this, your works will never, ever, ever come close or compare to the work that Jesus has done. And then finally, for all of us, may we turn to the crucified Christ every day. 
You know, the, the cross and the empty tomb, it's not for Easter anymore. And let's not do it, though, as a way of checklist ritual. But let's do it as a means to life-giving liberty, knowing that he is more than sufficient to save and to sanctify our eyes, our hearts, our minds toward Jesus as a way of avoiding foolishness of sanctification, legalism in the days ahead. Pastor Charles Spurgeon, great 19th century pastor and teacher, preacher, he was approached one day after his sermon by a, a member who said, we've grown tired of your sermons, Pastor Surgeon. Every week you end up at the cross. Spurgeon had a way of doing that. He could preach any book of the Bible and he'd make his way back to the cross almost every sermon. And apparently he wanted some variety in the sermons. Well, after Charles Spurgeon explained to him the foolishness of a sermon without Christ, he went on to transition to comparing it to the foolishness for all of us of a day without Christ. And I hope that this excerpt, uh, just short as we close, is an encouragement to you that it is a way to pursue greater freedom and greater service as well. He would say, And it is as a Christless day, like a brook without water, like a sky without sun, a night without a star. It is a place of tears for angels and laughter for devils. Oh, Christian, we must have Christ do see to it that every day when you wake, you give a fresh taste of Christ by contemplating his person, his cross, publicly portrayed. Live all the day trying as much as lieth in you to season your hearts with him. And then at night, lie down with him upon your tongue. May we find great freedom and abundant life in a Christ-filled day. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for speaking, preserving, inspiring these words from your servant, Paul, speaking directly to our hearts and our minds today, Lord. We pray for those who have not yet received your gift of grace through faith, Lord, that they might know you, that they might discover the great assurance of your presence and of your future hope. For those of us, Lord, struggling with a burden of doing in order to earn favor. Give us freedom in our labor. Give us freedom, Lord, in our worship and our service. Keep us from comparisons. Enable us to serve and to love one another in new and deeper ways. And may we never, ever have to grow in our relationship and our discipleship, but may we always, always have the privilege of having to, getting to, we get to. We pray this all in your name. Amen.